right now with two. It's 5.30 in the morning, and Mike Reiner is already at work. Hey there, everybody. Welcome in. This is my dipping my toes into the podcast waters and seeing how this all works out. You can find it right here on The Athletic. Don't know how often these are going to come about. Don't know how what the frequency will be or anything like that. We're winging this just as we go. Can't wait to get into it because joining me is one of my favorite people on the entire planet. He is a guy well-versed in all things R. Fairburg, the city of Dallas. He's been a part of so much. He has seen so much, done so much, written about so much. Now he's taking his talents elsewhere. But you know him from the Dallas Observer, you know him from the Dallas Times-Herald, you know him from the Dallas Morning News, you know him from intentional grounding on the ticket, he is the great Robert Wolonski. Man, I, I, can I just leave right now? That was such a good buildup that I have anything I have to say from here on out will be profoundly anticlimactic. I doubt that very seriously. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Oh, my, good Lord, how honored am I? To, I mean, of all the people you chose, you could have had your pick of any actual celebrity, any actual important person, anybody of actual substance, and you chose me to do this. In fact, I tried to talk you out of this repeatedly, uh, but you did not take my advice. So here we sit five months after we were last together face-to-face. That's uh, right. Uh, we were uh, we're a little further apart than we were last time, but uh, my God, it's good to see you, and it's good to be here, and I could not be more thrilled or honored. Well, it's good to see you as well. You are my leader, and honestly, I landed on you for this very, very quickly, and I never really wandered off of it too much. <laughs> I've had this all the way. I warn everyone, I tried. Yeah, you tried, but you did not succeed. We have had uh, both of us some changes in life circumstances. And um, I wanted to get into, um, first of all, what were the things that led you to leaving the Dallas Morning News? Because I will tell you, I could not have been more shocked. Well, no more shocked than I was when you announced out of nowhere that you were leaving the ticket. Yeah, but you were the quintessential newspaper guy. And you were the me. founder of the ticket and the a voice I've heard in my headphones. And by the way, it's a delight to hear you in my headphones. But it's a delight. Uh, you were someone who I grew up listening to who was as uh, ubiquitous as static on the radio. I mean, you are uh, – my change was shocking to, I guess, a few people who knew me. But It was shocking know. to me. Well, look uh, – it you know, I've had five months to reflect on it and five months to actually do the job. So, you know, when I think about the change then versus or why I did it then. And by the versus, way, before we go any further, yeah. tell everybody where you are now. So I'm the communications director at Heritage Auctions. Yes. Heritage and I am still writing, by the way, for the uh, do some op-ed writing. I'm under the gun, actually on a deadline for the morning news for some op-eds. Uh, but yes, Heritage Auctions is where I have landed and, and very proudly so. And Heritage Auctions, of course is the leader 
in its field. It is the world's largest uh, auction house that deals with sports memorabilia, but it is also uh, certainly well-known and was founded upon uh, numismatic business, the coin business. It was founded by and is run by uh, the guys who, who came up uh, buying and selling coins and who desperately and deeply love uh, the numismatic trade. Um, but certainly comic books uh, was the thing they got into next. Sports uh, memorabilia is something uh, for which Heritage is incredibly well-known. Selling million-dollar historic bats. Uh, we have a big auction coming up in uh, August 29th and 30th uh, that has Sandy Koufax's uh, game-worn jersey at uh, Ebbets Field, Mickey Mantle's jersey he wore when he hit his 535th, his penultimate home run, Don uh, Larson's hat that he wore when he pitched the World Series perfect game in 1956. So that's one reason why I went there, right? To, to be able to hold history in the palm of my hand, which was uh, greatly... Uh, I mean, it was, it was a great thrill I, I, to actually hold that hat and to see what beautiful condition it's in all these years later. It was, uh, it was in the Hall of Fame once upon a time. I can't tell you how all that stuff just sets my soul on fire. <laughs> and mine, too. And, uh, of course, some of you may remember occasionally when we were over on Maple, when the radio station was over on Maple. I pr- probably shouldn't say we anymore, but when it was over on Maple, Heritage Auctions which has the, or I guess holds the naming rights on the building. You're Did. On, uh, we you moved. Know. The Heritage has moved off of Maple. Uh, now a little closer uh, to DFW in a much, 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 much larger facility. Yeah. Um, they were upstairs on, the, I believe, the Third, eight, yeah. 18th floor or something like that up there. Several floors. Yeah. And whenever they got something in that they thought we would want to see or be interested in, they would bring it down. And we would take a look at it. Their guys would come down, tell us what it was and all about it and everything like that. And it was always just so incredible. It could be sports stuff or a guitar that somebody had or who knows what it might be. We just auctioned off Linda Ronstadt's piano that was uh, owned by uh, Peter Asher and played by where James Taylor did the demos for JT. Carol King played it. Joni Mitchell, Elton John, Nelson Riddle, Ray Charles. Uh, I actually got a chance to talk to Linda Ronstadt about the piano, so... You know, that's some of the stuff. That's kind of the reason why I went to Heritage. You know, remember, when I was at the Times-Herald, I was a music critic. Mm -hmm. At the Observer, for a couple of years, I wrote about sports. I wasn't always a city columnist. I wasn't always a cranky man writing about the failings of my city. Uh, I used to love writing about and grew up writing about and always dreamed of writing about the arts. Uh, And sports has certainly been a passion and pursuit of mine as well. So, you know, that's one reason why Heritage really appealed to me. And look, it's we're coming a couple of years after you know my cancer. Um, so having gone through that, I just kept thinking, what other things would I like to do? What other businesses would I like to learn? How can I take what I've learned in 30 years of writing and apply it to a, in a different way? Because I'd still do a significant amount of writing every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, some for publication, some not for publication, but... You know, it's funny when you see your name pop up in places you never imagined. Uh, when you see press releases show up as articles and other publications, it's kind of fun. It's uh, It's been a real thrill to do something different, and these guys are great. They've been nothing but supportive at Heritage. I get to dabble in video work, which is something I've always wanted to do. So, mm-hmm. so there were just a lot of different kind of opportunities. It had nothing to do with my feelings about the paper. I mean, if anything, I was a little frustrated with the fact that I just kept seeming to write the same column over and over and over again. When it came to something like Shingle Mountain, about which I'd been writing for two years, and to see so little progress being made in the city fathers and mothers doing nothing about it, and the fact that it just remained 
And Marcia Jackson, who lives with it in her backyard, has been suffering with it there. And, and it just, it got to be a little frustrating. And I kept thinking, how many times can I write the same thing until the anger dissipates and it's just sadness? In fact, it yeah. probably did, actually, at some point. I mean, that, that must be maddening. I mean, I, there, there must have been some maddening aspects. Yeah, I mean, I look uh, I, I at that job because you did write about some, I mean, there's some bad shit going on out there in this world, and you did have to write about it a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, and look, and it took its toll, I'm not going to lie. Between, between going through cancer, um, watching my father go through cancer, which he's still battling, um, and just writing about murder and 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 the city's failure to bring hope and help to those it has ignored for so many decades, I would go home many nights and I would be incredibly depressed. My mood was uh, such that nobody in my family wanted to be around me. Um, I brought my work home with me and it stayed there and it weighed on me. It pressed on my chest, it laid on my shoulders, uh, it swirled around my head, and it made me very, very unhappy. Was it easy to shed that? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, uh, you know, the, today uh, I was working on something that involved a significant amount of investigative reporting, and I will say that I, I kind of uh, got a little tingly, uh, you know, stretching those muscles that I hadn't necessarily stretched. But that said, I am still writing pieces. Uh, it's been a couple of months since I've had something in the paper, but I am working on a piece. Uh, I hope it will have published by the time this airs. Yeah, I still get a kick out of it. I still talk to people at the paper. I still send story tips to people at the paper. I love the morning news. I love journalism. It's, it is the, uh, I don't want to say it's the salvation uh, of our society, but it certainly is one of the, the legs that keeps it propped up. So yeah, I, I really do miss being there. I miss my colleagues. But that said, even if we were in the office, we wouldn't be together at the moment anyway. Yeah. In fact, the funny thing is uh, all of my stuff is still sitting at the morning news because everybody cleared out because of the uh, pandemic at the exact same time that I left. You told me that a few minutes ago, <laughs> that if you were to go back to work there today, you would go back to a desk that was pretty much as you left it. It's exactly as I left it March 11th. Astounding. Just astounding. I'm just hoping at this point they keep it as a shrine. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of things down at the radio station that I, I was hoping about that, but I think they've already wound up in the dumpster by now. Well, the problem is the one thing I really want to get out of the paper is my Dallas Times-Herald box, ironically enough. So my Times-Herald uh, stand is sitting at the Dallas Morning News, and I, I, I probably should go get that sooner than later. But somebody I saw, one of my former colleagues, tweeted a picture or Facebooked a picture of the empty newsroom the other day. And fortunately, he did it from the second floor, so his, uh, his shot from the balcony down, I could see my stuff, and I really zoomed in, and sure enough, everything is exactly as I left it. That's amazing. <laughs> Some things never change in this world. Well, I'm glad you're happy, glad you're well, glad you feel like you uh, did the right thing for you, even though I miss you terribly doing that. Like I say, I think of you and... I don't, don't mean to pigeonhole you or anything like that, although that's pretty much what I'm doing here. But <laughs> I think of you uh, in, in a certain way, and to me, you are the quintessential newspaper man, not to mention the one that I've probably gotten to know better than any of the others I've known who applied that craft. Well, look, but, I, I'm, but I'm, things, things move on. I I'm get 50, that. I'm 51. Clearly, nothing is forever. I, I really love the job at Heritage. I'm not saying that... One day I'll go back to the morning news, although, you know, I'm, I'm still going to write. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I got approached uh, a couple of days ago by a New York agent out of the blue about writing a book that has to do with Dallas, obviously. Um, and it's something near and dear to my heart, something that has wide-ranging consequences, not just for the city or the region, but for, I think it tells a larger story of the country. I certainly don't want to give too much away about it, but it's something that I had been thinking about, so to have gotten this phone call at this particular moment really, really intrigued me. So I've never written a book. Uh, I thought about it, and I had an opportunity 20, 30 years ago to write a book about Texas music, only to realize that the contract was dreadful, the uh, agent was dreadful, the editor was dreadful, uh, and then they ended up stealing my uh, proposal and gave it to another writer anyway, um, which was fine, you know. Mm-hmm. The book wasn't great. I could redo that book, but uh, I don't want to revisit that particular subject at this moment. If I ever did do a book, it'd be about Dallas. So that pigeonholes me pretty bad. It's funny. I walked. I told you when I walked in. You, you saw it. I'm such a cliche. I walk in here. My shirt says Dallas, and my mask said Dallas. No, I we am, love what we love in this world. I, I, I am nothing if not a tremendous self parody. Yeah, and I, I'm painted with that same brush. Largely as a big Dallas advocate, which I am, born here, raised here, schooled here, we are just men. like you. Well, look, we are men above the age of 50, each of us. Yes, one of us well above the age of 50. Most people who know anything about us know where we went to high school. How many people know where the people they're talking to or, or listen to went to high school? We're very proud of where we came from. Uh, in fact, I still need to give you that Kimball... Uh, that Justin Kimball uh, gym bag that I have sitting at my house. No, I would love to have a Kimball <laughs> Knight gym bag for sure. I wore a TJ, uh, my TJ t-shirt yesterday, so yeah. Well, I'm glad that this is working out for you, man. I'm glad you're happy, glad you feel like you did the right thing. Well, you look fantastic, by the way. I mean, look, no one uh, has uh, made a better life choice than Mike Reiner here. Well, it's worked out just fine, so much so that most of my colleagues, first time they Whenever I run into them, whenever we're going to hang out or something like that, the first thing they say to me when I roll up is, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I somehow managed to get out. If there is a right time to get out, I somehow pull that trick off. But but see, that's the thing, right? I think that's a decision both of us made. And I think I called you or you and I were going to talk about this and you were very close. You know, you didn't talk to a lot of people about your decision. We, we've talked about that before mm-hmm. when I wrote the piece about you leaving for yes. the morning news. By the way, you were the first call that day. Well, I, 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 I hoped I was. That's, yes, let's put it that uh, you way. were. You were. But it's funny. You know, you and I talked a little bit about this during and after my departure. It is way better to get out too soon than too late. I'm finding that out. Yeah. And I was one of those guys that I thought that I would be there when they turned off the lights. That's exactly what people used to say about me. Oh, yeah. everybody will be gone, but you'll be the guy turning out the lights. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, for a long time, I did. For a long time, I had the idea that we would all be up there one day after everything had been taken out of there and there was nothing in the space, but we would all be up there just one last time hanging out. Everybody would leave one by one, and I would be the last guy. I would make one last round in there and then walk to the front door and take one last look around and turn out the lights, and that would be it. And I, I really liked that. I really liked thinking of myself as that guy. 
It's the uh, the ending to a, a wonderful sitcom that you grew up loving, and the, it's that last freeze frame yeah. moment when the lights fade to black and the credits roll, and that's that. Yeah. It is the perfect cinematic moment. Yeah, and I always thought I would be that guy, but as things turned out, I don't know, I started to get a vibe somewhere along the line that maybe this is the time. What do you mean? What What kind of vibe? It's very hard to put into words. There were, there were there were certain things going on down at the station. There are things going on in the business, and it started seeming something different to me. Seemed to be something different to me, and I know this makes me appear as being somewhat inflexible, unwilling to change with the times and all that. And there have been worse things than that said about me. And there's probably a certain <laughs> amount of truth to it. But uh, I don't know. I just started thinking, you know, if you don't want to go through all this, you don't have to. Because, you know, I was doing okay in every other way. And I'd been told by the people who have guided me through my entire career that if you wanted to retire, you can. Or if you want to get out, you can. You don't have to do this anymore if you don't want to. And that was like I don't know, six, seven years ago when I first started hearing that, but I wouldn't hear of it then. You know, I was all in. I was just as dug in on the gig as I had ever been, and I just would not hear of that. And somewhere in there, it's hard to say when, it's hard to say why, it's hard to say exactly what it was that made it do this, but somewhere in there, something changed. And it was probably about this time a year ago that I first started having the conversation with myself that it was time to get out. And I said, okay, well, let's just, let's let this sit for a while. Let's let it sit and see, number one, if something happens to make you rethink. Number two, how you feel at the end of the year. Number three, if you can come up with a plan as to how you want to do this, if you do it. And that's kind of the path we went down on all three of those fronts. Well, when you say we, it's really you. I mean, you're, you're the one who had to reckon with your yeah, I'm end using, date I, approaching. I'm using the royal we. Right, here. but you, you had, and I, you know, I've always been kind of curious about it. Look, for me, when I, when, I, when I left the morning news to go to Heritage, it was a real struggle because I thought I'd define myself for more than 30 years. 30 years professionally. I started at the Times Herald in 1990, but mm -hmm. had been interning before that. Had my first piece in the Times Herald in 86 when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, certainly had been at the Texan at the uh, University of Texas for four years from 86 to 90. So been professionally being paid to be a writer for 34, 35 years. And it's how I defined myself. But everyone had to remind me that's not how you have to, that's not how you should see yourself. It's just how you do for the moment. So I wrestled with it for a very long time to the point where I, I'm pretty sure that everybody at the morning news and at Heritage was just sick of me. Yeah. In fact, uh, right, when people would tell you that, did you want to hear it? That I don't have to be the thing yeah, I think yeah, I am? Yeah. It's nice to hear. I mean, my brother was actually kind of the... So it's interesting. My brother was kind of the biggest voice in all of that because it so happens that this coincides with my brother retiring after 30-plus uh, years as, as, a, as a Marine. Uh, he's a lieutenant colonel in the Corps, and uh, his, uh, he's, he's retired, but he's actually uh, kind of off the payroll uh, in, in October. And but, I said, but, I mean, what would you think when somebody would tell you that that's what you are? You are that. 
Well, my brother used to say, don't be the thing you think you are. Be something different. I mean, you're just you. Yeah. You're just did, did, did you buy into that, though? I resisted it for a long time. As I, and that, my, the reason I bring that up is because I assume you did as well. Yes, I did. Because I've told you this a million times. I used to sit there at the, at the bus stop at FP Carrier waiting for the bus to take me to Spence Middle School uh, and listen to you every morning. And I, I love LaBella and Rody, but I really loved when Mike Reiner would show up. That's why you're the reason why to this day I have a KZEW bumper sticker on the back of my Jeep. I am honored. So that is obviously how I assume you define yourself as a guy who's on the radio, uh, who talked about sports, but who, who, who endeavored, who, who created this thing. And that's why I, I sort of wonder when you, when did you realize you didn't have to be that thing that you had been for that long? I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. I don't know if I've ever yet quite come to terms with that because that's still the way a lot of people think of me. Well, look, here we are on talking on headphones, on headsets and microphones, yeah. doing something very similar. Yes, that's right. So, so, so chances are that or something like it is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my time, just like writing. I will always it, write. Yeah, it's something you're going to be doing. So I guess... Context changes. Right, we're just doing doesn't. the thing we did at a different place for a different time for a different reason. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, the thing about it for me, though, was when I got out, I really thought that nobody was going to care. I really thought that I, it was going to be seen as, okay, this is just another old radio hack giving it up. Nice career, little buddy. Is that, is that just modesty talking? I don't know. No, no, I really believed it. I really believe that. How could you believe that? Based upon the fact that every every remote I've ever been to, every time I've ever been with you in public, you are a magnet. You are the light that attracts every single moth in the darkness. How could you have thought for one moment that someone wouldn't care? I just just thought I was merely a a byproduct of something that was a whole lot greater than me. And I, I was, you know? I was just one spoke on a, a, a very great wheel, but I didn't think I was anything particularly special in that or that anybody was particularly attracted to me or anything like that. And I, I was okay with it. I knew that there was a chance that I would um, trundle off into the darkness and that would be that. But as things turned out, and if there's one thing I did right in this, I never said I was retiring. <laughs> no, you didn't. I didn't. I mean, go back and look at the video. At no time in there do I say I'm retiring. In fact, I don't even mention the word in any form. No retired, no retiring, no retirement, no retire anything. Right. All I said was I'm stepping away from the ticket as, as to what was down the road. I said, if something comes along that sounds like it might be fun, we'd look at it. And if not, that was okay, too. And that's kind of where I was with it. By then, I had reached a, I had come to terms with it at least that much to where that if nothing else ever happened for me, if nobody ever wanted me to do anything, and if I never got to do a chance to do anything else, I was okay with it. But then, just a couple days after that video was posted, there I was, sitting at Strangeways with Or Moyal and this man Kent Garrison over here. 
And they were saying, hey, why don't you come do something at the athletic? <laughs> and I said, wow, really? The athletic? I love the athletic. And one thing led to another, and boom, here we are. Will you be doing any writing? Because you were, uh, I have many copies of Buddy Magazine in which you contributed a piece or two. I don't know. That's up to them. Whatever they want me to do is what I will do. And right now they're thinking, thinking of me only in the podcast space, and the podcast space is fine with me. Did you like writing? You, you also wrote for the Morning News, but of course that was when the zoo and uh, the Morning News were all under the Belo umbrella. Right. Um, I don't know. It, it, it tortures me a little bit. Always worried a lot more about that than I did going on the air. Going on the air always felt a lot more natural and a lot more where I should be. When I was given an assignment to write something, I would worry about it for days. And hey, welcome to the world of journalism. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of the way you roll in this thing. All right, I also wanted to ask you about your time on the gig when you were covering city issues. Sure. Because... In this convoluted time that we live in where everything has gotten twisted. Everybody, every, everybody's a columnist these days. Yes, everybody is a columnist these days. Everything has gotten so incredibly twisted. Everything's gotten so complex. I know things were pretty complex then, but in comparison to today, what was going on back then looks pretty simple. You talking, about, you're talking about six months ago? You know, uh, <laughs> six months, six years, six whatever, you know? Look, my first, uh, you know, I started out as a music critic at the Times-Herald. When the Herald folded, uh, when the Morning News bought it and closed it down on December 7th of 1991. What a day. A day I will never forget. I have 13 copies of the Times-Herald to remind me of it. I had a piece in the last Times-Herald at which I quote at length uh, Warren Zevon. Yeah, in fact, I, I was the first person in the paper the day it was closing down. Did I ever tell you this story? No. It's a pretty grand little story. I was, uh, it was a Sunday. When the, yeah, the, that I remember. It was a Sunday. That I remember because I was, the Cowboys were playing, and I was at the Cowboy game. And, of course, up in the press box, you can guess what the topic of conversation was. I'm sure there were many uh, writers who needed to get back to the office to clean out their desks. Oh, there were. There were. So I was, the, I was on my way in. To write, of all things, a profile of Barry Manilow. Wow. One of my mom's favorites. I was happy to do it <laughs> only for that very reason that I'd mm -hmm. grown up listening to Barry Manilow singing in my mom's Chrysler Cordoba as a young lad in the 1970s. Helen Reddy and Barry Manilow were the soundtrack of my youth, which is why I so rebelled and decided that the Clash and the Sex Pistols were the way to go. So I, was, I got a call from Kim Markham, who was our editor at the time in the, in, in the arts section said, you don't need to come in and work on that Barry Manilow piece today because the paper has been bought and is, is, is shutting down tomorrow. Today's the last issue. Now, were there any rumors to that effect going around leading up to it? So there had been some rumors and some discussion to the point where in October I had actually been offered a job by Mike Lacey, who owned New Times, which is the company that had bought the Dallas Observer. Mike Lacey had offered me a job, and I said yes, and I had resigned at the Dallas Times-Herald in October of 1991. Uh, and I was told uh, under no uncertain terms that the paper was not going to be sold despite what I had heard. We were called into a large meeting of all of the arts writers and told to uh, to shut up, do our jobs, and uh, 
They're going to put a lot of arts on the front page, and things are going to be great, and it's going to be a brand-new day for the Dallas Times-Herald, and two months later it closed. Mm-hmm. Less than two months later. Mm-hmm. Shortly after they had sent me to uh, L.A. to interview Madonna and actually did put that on the front page, for which I received endless grief uh, from the Dallas Observer, ironically enough, from a good, dear, wonderful friend of mine who I had worked with at the, Dallas, uh, at the Daily Texan at the University of Texas. So, yeah, I, uh, I got a call from Kim Markin. paper's going to close. So instead of not going, uh, I rushed right over to the paper because I wanted to get my stuff. And I figured I'd want to get as much stuff out of the building as I could before the morning news came in and sent their goons to keep us from getting our stuff out of the paper, which is exactly what happened. They searched all of our boxes as we were taking them out. Although they somehow missed the TR-100 that I smuggled out of the paper, several people got out with typewriters and other, uh, other valuables. Nice. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Stick it to the morning news, our competition. Sure, you so, bet. Uh, I got out all of my files. I, uh, I have uh, the morning news. Uh, I have many morning news music files uh, that I, uh, I cherish deeply. I have the REM replacements, Beatles, and uh, a few other files in my, uh, in my house. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think they may be the morning news. Now that I think about it. So everybody starts filtering in shortly after I get there, and there's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and I'm very sad, but I'm also very young, and I'm a little terrified about what am I going to do from here on out. So I get to the paper, and uh, everybody starts getting there, and everybody starts drinking excessively because everybody back in those days had kept a lot of booze in their desks. So we ended because up because that's what newspaper guys did. Uh, that's exactly what we did. I mean, you got to remember, this is 1991. There was a smoking office in the Times Herald. Oh, of course. And the best part about the smoking office at the Herald is that that's where you wanted to go whenever Molly Ivins came to town, because Molly would go sit in the Dallas in the smoking room, which was between entertainment and the newsroom, and it had three computer terminals. And Molly would sit at the one on the left hand side, and you sat in. You, you tried to sit near Molly and chatter up as much as you could, knowing she didn't really want to talk to you. She just wanted to smoke and write. That's really where I fell in love with smoking, was sitting next to Molly. I was at the Dallas Times Herald. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so disgusting. You'd come out of the smoking room, and you would just smell like you had, been, you had been swimming in an ashtray for four weeks, and it was just the worst thing possible. But, you know, my, some of my greatest memories of journalism are at the, in, uh, are at the Times Herald, you know, they're, they're certainly tied to some of the worst memories, you know, covering, covering Stevie Ray's funeral, mm-hmm. being with Jimmy and being with the family. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that entire week was incredibly difficult. But it was also the place where I got to interview Madonna and Mick Jagger in the same week and got to, to do a lot of things that I really enjoyed doing. But when the Herald folded, uh, I immediately went to the, more, to the Observer and I was very surprised that they would let me do this. Uh, I thought after I had told them no in October, after I had said yes, that they didn't want anything to do with me. Mike Lacey still took me, uh, for which I'm incredibly grateful to this day. I started Christmas Eve, 1991, at the Dallas Observer. Uh, and I was not the music editor at the time. A former colleague of mine from the Daily Texan was there, Gilbert Garcia, who's now an acclaimed writer about politics in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was writing about City. My first cover story for the Dallas Observer was about a man on death row, Ronald Buffalo Chambers, who was responsible for one of the grisliest deaths in the city's history uh, uh, on the Trinity River uh, levees. Spent a lot of time with him and his family in prison, and uh, his father was in prison. Uh, it was a, an incredibly difficult story to write, but I wrote about City Hall. My first mayor that I covered was Steve Bartlett, and uh, I, I had a valuable education. I mean, I had just come from the Herald, where Jim Shoots was working as his uh, editorial writer. So it was um, my everything I learned about the city, I learned from incredibly good people from an incredibly close distance. 
Give me your three favorite people that you worked with at the time. So. <laughs> My three favorite people, that's easy. Uh, Jim Schutz, who I didn't know very well at the time, but certainly would come to know Jim uh, at The Observer. Jim was on the editorial board, and Jim was uh, someone who I'd, I'd see, and we'd go to lunch. We had a, a few common friends. David Cronkey, who was the Times-Herald uh, Times uh, film critic. We remained friends uh, after I moved to Los Angeles in the mm -hmm. mid-1990s. And Michael Phillips, who was the theater critic, who's now the uh, Chicago Sun-Times film critic. Great guys, all dear friends of mine. And, uh, but there were so many people. Tom Sabulis, who was the film critic there, is the one who taught me how to write. Um, yeah, it was really easy. It was really, I mean, God, the Times Herald, I, I, I read it every now and then still. I have old copies of it. And I'm just amazed by sort of the gutsiness and the, the bravery and, the, and the, the smarts that that paper had. It was a golden time for newspapers. It was. Around here. It, it was, it was, I mean, on both ends, that newspaper war was the the real winners. There were we, the consumers. Yeah, it was. I mean, look, you know, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I also had good friends at the morning news at the time. Competitors. Tom Morstad was a friend. Uh, still is. There were a lot of people that I really enjoyed hanging around with. Tom Morstad and I would see each other at concerts. I revered Russell Smith, uh, the late Russell Smith. Oh yes. Critic. Uh, a wonderful writer, a great I thinker. knew him. He was a great guy. Yeah. Just a, a, a genuinely wonderful human being. So, yeah, I knew a lot of folks and, and just, like, I just loved There was never a time when I didn't want to do this. In fact, it's funny, when the Herald folded, that night, that day, Channel 8 caught me outside, packing up my Dodge Ram chargers, putting all my stuff into the car. And uh, Channel 8 stuck a camera in my face and said, what are you going to do now? And I, I'll never forget, I said, I don't know, I, I always wanted to be in newspapers. It's all I ever wanted to be. It's all I ever loved. So I went to Blockbuster. Now, the clearly, at that time, you didn't know what the standard answer to that question No, was. I did not. What is the standard answer? I don't know. Go to the range, get something to eat. <laughs> I, I gave them the 21-year-old's. The I don't know. It's all I ever loved. It's, it's all I ever wanted to be was a journalist. I just don't know how to do anything else with my life. So I went to Blockbuster the next day with my girlfriend, who was also a, a Times Herald writer. We, we went to Blockbuster. Uh, and I was renting something, and the guy at the Blockbuster counter said, Hey, you're that guy who only ever wanted to be a journalist. It's all you ever knew how to do. It's all you ever wanted to be. And he started making fun of me. And I kept thinking about the fact that, dude, I just lost my job. Oh, what a dick. It was uh <laughs> it has profoundly stayed with me all these years later. But yeah, it's uh, so Jim Shoots, Michael Phillips, David Crocky. People that nobody knows except for Jim. And yeah. Jim Jim is revered and rightly so. I remember all three of them very well. Yeah. What about the morning news? Your 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 three favorite guys there. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an unfair question seeing as how I still talk to many of them and oh, see no, them. Okay, give me three that come immediately to mind. Tristan Hallman is uh, someone uh, he's Is that uh, fair? Yeah, Tristan Hall, like look, Tristan Hallman's the mayor's chief of staff, uh, mayor's chief of policy at the moment. Uh but he and I shared the the city hall beat for a long time. He and I also went through a lot of personal stuff together uh, on his side and on my side. He was one of the first people to find out that I had cancer. So was Rudy Bush, who was my editor at the time, and he's a he's a, a editor in the of, uh, editorials at the moment. Rudy was a dear friend. Tristan's a dear friend. Uh, Tasha to Paris, uh, who was part of the group that was let go uh, unceremoniously in January 2019. You know, you talk about these pivotal moments in your career. Mm -hmm. And your way of thinking about the business that you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, when a lot of my colleagues were uh, were laid off that year, um, 
many for reasons I didn't understand and still don't to this day. When Tasha departed the paper, it was a significant blow because she was one of the best reporters and writers I have ever known. Channel 8 is very fortunate to have her at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's funny because in this business, you're at a place for a long time and you think it's going to last forever. And you're not terribly mindful of the goings-on behind the scene that can come along and change everything Uh at the drop of a hat. When I was at the zoo, we had that because... Below was wanting to get out of the radio game. And that was unbeknownst to most of us. But we got word one day that the station was going to be sold. Everybody's going, oh, well, that's okay. You know, I'm not going to do anything about us. Well, yeah, they were going to do something about us. And that doing something about us started in pretty short order, too. How do you mean? They started letting people go. The new owners did. Really? Yeah, the new owners came in and... And after telling us, yeah, everything's going to be all right, don't worry, don't worry. And it, it, it was, what they were really saying is, don't worry for a couple of days here. All right. Don't but worry in, for the next five minutes. Yeah, but in a couple of days, we're going to be evaluating everybody, and we're going to be making some changes. And it's not Do you remember who the first person, or the, the person whose layoff surprised you the most? Um, probably my own. <laughs> <laughs> How quickly did you uh, get laid off after uh, the station was sold? Oh, I was on the first boat out. Were you really? Yeah, I was on the first boat out. Did they give you a reason? They didn't have to. Sure. I knew. I understood. Or I didn't understand. I didn't like it. But once I started talking to people about it, they just all told me, look, that's the way of this thing. You know, that's the way things work in this business. New owners come in. And they start looking at the bottom line. Anybody they think is superfluous or making too much money or this or that or whatever, they'll do something about it. How old were you when you got laid off at the zoo? I was 35. So what did you think you were going to do next? I had no idea. Were you terrified? A little bit. I was hoping that I could find something to keep me propped up in the game, and I did. At WBAP for about a year. Right. But... um, they were in the process of bringing Randy Galloway on board to do sports at six all the time. He was doing like one night a week. Right. And it just so happened that that one night of the week, their ratings would approximately triple what they were any other night of the week. So they started working on ways to get him over there. And that meant that they had to come up with every nickel they could to get him to do it. And one of those nickels was what was going to me. So that was that. Did you ever think, because this is the thing that's always really amazed me about you, in as much as that you've never had to leave the market. Radio, you know, there, there's a lot of guys, there's a few guys at the ticket who certainly aren't from Dallas. There are, uh, most radio stations are filled with people who are not from the city in which they were born and raised. Mm-hmm. You were one of the rare exceptions. In fact, I would dare say the ticket's an incredibly rare exception. Because there are a lot of guys from the area. Yeah. We have a lot of guys who fit which, that profile. Which is why I loved it. Why uh, there have been hosts over the years I did not necessarily like that much. Because mm-hmm. they felt like they were outsiders who belonged on you know something in Chicago or Philadelphia or Boston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you ever think, oh, God, I chose a profession in which I may have to move? Yeah. I did. And I quickly came to the conclusion that even though I've chosen a profession in which I may have to move, I did not want to move. I was going to square those things up. I did not know. 
But um, I, I don't know. I guess in the long run it all worked out. But for a long time I didn't see – I didn't see how I was going to get a shot at establishing a toehold like I had at the zoo in the market anywhere else. But did you ever have a station in like Raleigh, North Carolina or Seattle ever reach out to you at any point and say, why don't you come to this city and do this thing here? No, no, I I, I don't think I was a very good fit. I don't think I'm a very good fit in radio. In fact, (laughs) in fact, people used to tell me I wasn't. At the zoo, when I first got there and first started hanging around there, they told me, look, man, you're never going to make it here because you don't have the right sound. You don't have the voice for it. You sound Southern, and you're never going to make it in this business on account of that. Your voice was also much higher back then. Yeah. So I started being a little bit more conscious of those things in conversation. And whenever I got on the air and I, you know, doing what I could, to do something about that. But still, I feel like it held me back because I, I don't have the radio sound. You've actually it's, grown you know, into it over the years in, in a remarkable way. Because there was a point, it's funny, when I go back and listen to your old broadcast or, or for whatever reason, some, uh, some old zoo audio gets played, your voice is obviously a little higher. Yeah. It's a little more southern. Yeah. Um, you, but you've grown into a very beautiful radio voice. Well, I appreciate that, but it's hard for me to get my head around that. But that's awfully nice. But nobody listen. likes the sound of their own voice. No, nobody does. I mean, I'm not you. So, well, this is driving me crazy. I hate to hear myself. Well, you, you, you are the most. Na- you have the most natural radio voice I think <laughs> I've ever heard. Yours is very NPR. And I love the NPR. Well, that's why Intentional Grounding is the NPR of the ticket. That's right. It is. That's right. I lull people to sleep with my deep voice. And it's also very, it's a very soft yes, but deep voice. Yes, but you're saying something. Right. You're saying something that they need to hear that they haven't thought of. No, I'm just asking David more a question usually. <laughs> so, uh, no, it's, uh, that's, look, I just keep thinking about the fact that when you got laid off from the zoo, you could have gone in any different direction and one of those directions or a hundred of those directions could have taken you out of the radio business mm-hmm. and that's why i guess when you left i kept thinking is this a man who's been in it long enough to realize that he didn't take it for granted was there ever going to be a moment where you thought geez i i should stay in it until i turn out the lights because i never want anyone to say he took the greatest job in the world for granted i didn't think of it like that And I did toy with the idea of doing something else, doing other things. I'd never really landed on any particular what or anything, but I knew what I had. I I knew what a, a great gig it was, and I also knew that I still want to do this. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know where it's going to be. I don't know how it's going to come about. But I still want to do radio. So I stayed with it in some form. And, and that, took me, that took me to GTE on call, where I wasn't on the air, but I was essentially doing the same thing that I did on the radio. That's right. You know? I got caught up in the tech bubble then. I didn't realize what that was at the time. Right. But now I look back on it, and I see that it was an amazing situation because GTE and other companies like it And again, this is finance well beyond my comprehension. But for whatever reason, back then, 
they all became flush with money. They had more money than they knew what to do with. And they had to figure out something to do with it. And just about all of them had something like GTE on call that they were putting up out there. Now, nobody ever used it, but still, they were throwing a lot of money at it. And it was run by people with these MBAs and everything, you know, young, highly motivated self-starters who used to compare colleges and MBAs that they had with each other and everything. And they weren't working cheap for sure. (laughs) But, you know, it all worked out in the long run. Tell me the three most influential people. I was going to say for you personally in radio. All right. One would have to be John Rohde. I have never seen anything like that guy. What do you mean? Well, for one thing, he knows everything about radio that one can know. If, if you wanted him to, he could build a transmitter, get the station on the air, go in, do the morning show. He could probably run the sales department. If there's any engineering stuff, he could for sure do that. Now, I don't know if he could run the sales department or not. He, he was never <laughs> particularly motivated in that way. But there was nothing about the radio business and, and radio in general that he didn't understand. And he is one of the most amazing guys I've ever met. Now, he's a, he's a nut. He's crazy. But he is the best kind of crazy you can possibly imagine. He is a, if he applied himself... And if he ever actually gave a damn about it, which he didn't, then there's no telling what that guy could have been. That, I mean, you can, you can invoke the name of Stern or Imus or whoever you want. And if that guy had wanted to, he could have been that. Easy. And he probably would have been better at it than any of them. Because he was just that natural a talent. He had an incredible gift for just winging stuff as he went along, making it up as he went along and making it work and making people dig it. So I can't answer that question without him being at the top of the list. When you guys were together at the zoo, would you tell him, hey, man, get your shit together because you can be somebody in this business? Um, he wouldn't have wanted to hear that from me. Why? I was too far below him on the food chain. You were just the sidekick? Yeah, I, I was just you know one of those other guys on the air. He, would, he wouldn't have wanted to hear that from me. In, in fact, I can't think of anybody he would want to hear that from. That really speaks, I guess, to how little he thought of radio in general. <laughs> it, it, for him, it was just something that he did. It was just something he was able to do, you know? Like and, and that's really about it. Uh, another guy would be John LaBella. So the two guys you worked with at yes, the zoo. Yes, the two guys I worked with at the zoo, both very influential. LaBella was a Northeastern radio junkie who put everything he had into it. And he was another very natural talent. I mean, he had the pipes. He had the on-air persona. You couldn't listen to LaBella on the radio and not come away feeling pretty good about things. He just inspired that in you. And he was always very, very encouraging. 
You know, whenever you you would do something really good, he he'd be the first guy to tell you, "Man, that was really great." And that's I'm, nice because you don't find a lot of guys like that. No, you don't they, find you don't find a lot of lot of guys like that. And I especially needed to hear that. Is that why you, in in recent years, have acquired a reputation as a guy who encouraged younger uh, talent at the ticket who might otherwise have gone unnoticed or felt unappreciated? Well, I'd like to think so. There was a long time there that I really didn't think it was my place to do that and didn't care much to do it. But over the years, I would like to think that changed some, you know, and I, I would like to think that there are some who might appreciate something I did or something I said to them along the way. I know that when somebody came along that I thought had some potential, I would tell them, you know, if they did something good, I'd tell them that was really good, really like that. You often hear younger guys, uh, especially during the weekend shows, uh, lately you hear a lot of guys talking about that side of you. I mean, your presence is certainly lingers over the station to this day, but a lot of guys, uh, whether you're, you've popped on on some Sunday shows uh, when you didn't have to, you, you've, you've, but they talk about that a great deal, and I've always been very impressed by that because I didn't know that about you, that that was a thing. I wouldn't say that you necessarily think of yourself as a mentor, but you certainly seem to have encouraged a lot of guys who needed it at that time. Well, if I did, then it's very nice of them to say so, and I appreciate that. So you might have gotten that from LaBella. Perhaps. Perhaps he would be one guy who certainly did that for me. There were some others as well who were very encouraging. Beverly Beasley was another. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Beverly Beasley used to do nights on the zoo, like 6 to 10. And she was terrific. She started out at the zoo as like a secretary or something like that, worked her way into an on-air spot, and turned herself with the skills of her amazing voice and just an amazingly um, welcoming personality that she had into a really top-notch jock. You know, it's amazing. You mentioned, obviously, the Bell and Rody and, and Beverly Beasley and her voice. It's amazing. All these years later, I can still hear their voices. I can hear, maybe it's because I still listen occasionally to these glimpses of the zoo that, that there's a, there's a website that has some, there's some on YouTube. Yeah, on uh, vocal. Yeah, there's some on vocal, but they're, there's, they're kind of all over the place. There, for years, there was a zoo uh, yeah. website, the zoo file. Right. That had a little raid transistor you could dial around and listen to old shows. Um, but I could still hear everybody's voice. That's how significant for me the station was. So It was incredible. It was an extraordinary collection of talent. It really was. And I was really, really lucky to have found a place in there and to be able to hang around there for a, a good while. Have you ever thought about writing? Because, look, the other day I just happened to watch FM. I, I have a copy of it on Blu-ray, and I was running out of things to watch, so I put in FM, and I thought, well, there's the zoo, or there's some approximation of any FM album rock station in oh, the yeah. 1970s. Oh, yeah. So I've always wondered, uh, and I'm glad I get the chance to ask you this publicly, have you ever thought about writing a book about that period? Because I can only imagine the tales to tell. I've thought about it. I have a little time on my hands these days. I was going to say, you're a man of leisure. Yes, nothing is out of play for me these days. So, I don't know, something like that might happen down the line. Well, if anybody listening to this, including uh, the owners of The Athletic, would like to pay Mike Reiner a significant amount of money to write a book about the zoo, I would actually buy a copy. You hear that, Kent? Let's make that happen. I'll pull all the strings I can, Mike. 
All right. One more thing I want to do. I've kept you here for a long, long time. I've lost all track of time, only knowing that I'm happy to be here for as long as you want me to be here. Okay. One thing I wanted to get into with you is you spent a lot of time in the city side scene covering the politics and ebb and flow of our Fairburg. Yes. And in the course of doing that, you came across many, many people of significance. Man. Mayors. They certainly thought they were significant. Mayors, city councilmen, <laughs> chiefs of police, police chiefs. I worked uh, at several publications with a person who became mayor, Laura Miller. Yes, that's right. We you were did. at the Times Herald and the Observer together. You did. Who among that group would you consider particularly memorable for one reason or another? So, you know, like I said, I started covering Steve Bartlett. Laura, I knew for many years. Uh, I, I, Ron Kirk, I always kind of, I certainly always liked and respected. The mayor with whom I probably had the closest relationship outside of Laura, because I was covering politics pretty much his entire time, uh, whether at the Observer running on Fair Park, the blog there, or certainly a city columnist and, and city hall writer was Rawlings, Mike Rawlings. He also guided the city through some incredibly difficult times whether it was when Ebola hit or, or the shooting, the police shooting downtown mm-hmm. in 2016. Um, I spent a, just a lot of time with him over the years for any number of reasons. So he's somebody who I think people certainly did not, he was not entirely loved, uh, universally loved. What uh, mayor is. Right. And I certainly disagree with a lot of the things. Uh, I, I thought his Grow South program was incredibly problematic, to say the least, in as much as that it didn't concentrate on Fair Park. How do you grow South Dallas uh, when you don't even look at Fair Park? I don't quite understand that. That said, he uh, certainly uh, did help launch or at least focused attention back on Fair Park with his uh, task force and the revitalization plan that was coming to fruition with the stones and all these uh, other things just as the pandemic hit. Ron Kirk is somebody I I always respected. Uh, I think we've and even Tom Leppard, whose politics I certainly don't agree with. Um, But Leppard, I I got along well with him. I mean, I've always found that uh, most mayors uh, that have been that have served during my time covering city politics uh, had the city's best interests at heart. Uh, may not have always uh, executed those intentions with uh, something I might have agreed with. I mean, I'm look. I guess part of the reason I'm not a city columnist anymore is that I don't really feel like you know burning all those bridges or lighting all those fires because there 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 were good things and bad things about every single one of those sure. people. Sure, I mean, but at least they were present. Yeah. Um, that is something I cannot say about our current mayor. No, well, you know, that it's, it's a very thinkless job. And as we consider the current mayor, no, you can't say that we're in dire need of leadership and I just don't feel it coming from, from that office. It's incredibly, uh, surprising, but actually it's not surprising in as much as that he didn't attend a lot of debates, didn't have that much to say. Uh, he's the first mayor to use being mayor as a resume builder, as a friend of mine likes to say, and I think it's a pretty apropos line. So I'm going to steal it because I know the friend who said it wouldn't want me to credit him anyway. All right. Let's do a little lightning round here. I got a few more names that I want to throw out, out at you. Oh, good. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind here. First anecdote that comes to mind. Um, when the name Al Lipscomb is invoked, what do you think? I think of the fact that Al Lipscomb, I thought Al wanted to do the best for his, gosh, 
of all the names to evoke Al Lipscomb. Um, could have done better, should have done better. Betrayed those he strived or claimed to fight for. What about David Kunkel? I love Chief Kunkel. My biggest problem with Kunkel is that uh, his interpretation of crime stats uh, left something to the imagination. Uh, his, mostly. But uh, I think David had uh, David was a smart guy, a thoughtful guy, a reasonable guy. He uh, left us in very good hands. I think David would have been an excellent mayor. What about Ron Kirk? You said that uh, you thought favorably of him. Yeah, I like Ron. I mean, you know, uh, I got, strangely enough, I, I wasn't covering politics as much. That was Laura Miller's beat. She was the city columnist at The Observer when Ron was mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't deal with him all that much as mayor because I was a music editor at the time. Uh, got to know him better, strangely, when he went to the Obama administration. Uh, liked him. Uh, still talk to him to this day and uh, find him to be a reasonable and agreeable human being. I remember Laura as quite the muckraker, muckraker when she was on the newspaper beat. She was a hell of a reporter. Yep. Laura, <laughs> Laura is the template for, I think, everybody who came after her. Yeah, uh, I think she, so, too. She was also a far better reporter than mayor. Do you think that once you are in that office, you learn a lot of things that you didn't know, and all of a sudden that golden bulb of enlightenment goes over, off over your head? And I'll you let you know in three years. Well, now. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a thing I <laughs> I just like to throw that out there on occasion, but because I... Uh, Look, one of the reasons I did leave the paper was because I can actually serve now on a board or a commission at City Hall. Uh, it's not been made easy by the, the fact that there is distancing, pandemic, and everything is taking place uh, from, mm -hmm. uh, from a faraway distance. Uh, so I can't go to City Hall for meetings, and I haven't even uh, looked into uh, what openings might be available. I would certainly think Landmark Commission would be the place I might end up serving or Park Board. Um, but uh, I keep thinking, uh, if, if the current guy can be the mayor, uh, then anybody can. So why not me? Why not you? Why not me? You got my vote. Well, thanks. What about the present chief of police? What kind of job do you feel like she's doing? Um, well, I certainly don't blame her for uh, all the crime that's happening in the city. Uh, I don't think uh, any chief or any police officer can be at any given at every place at every moment. Uh, I certainly do believe that uh, there needs to be a better um, a better way to spend. The significant amount of our budget that goes towards policing, uh, there needs to be a significant change in the way we fund and the way we think about policing. Um, one of the greatest books I've read in the, uh, the last few years uh, while writing a lot of columns on the subject was The End of Policing. It talks about the, uh, the overwhelming militarization of the police over the last several years. Um, I'm, I was struck by, if not appalled by, what happened on the uh, Margaret Hunt Hill Bridge uh, during the protests a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I still cannot believe that no one has been accountable for the uh, violence inflicted upon Dallas residents during those peaceful protests. Um, there were several police officers. The Morning News had a tremendous story about that just uh, a few days ago. And I know this might not air uh, immediately, but uh, it aired uh, the first weekend of August. Or it ran the first weekend of August. Uh, I think Miles Moffat, uh, Cassandra Jaramillo, and uh, Diane Solis wrote this tremendous piece about uh, an officer who fired uh, his uh, his non-lethal ammo at a woman uh, at point-blank range. Uh, no one's been accountable. No one's been held accountable, uh, least of all the chief of police. And I think her—I um, I, I have wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. 
But the fact is, David Brown uh, did a pretty extraordinary job guiding the city, as Rawlings did through uh, the shootings of uh, July 2016. Uh, didn't love everything about David Brown. He and I got along some days, didn't get along some days. He certainly didn't think much of the paper. Um, so she had a lot of, uh, she had big shoes to fill coming after Kunkel and coming after Brown. Uh, I think she has not done the job as well as she could or should. Finally, John Wiley Price. John's an interesting guy. I ran into him uh, in the early days of the pandemic. I was running to South Dallas uh, to uh, Bonton Farms to pick something up and happened to see his car parked out of uh, parked outside of a restaurant nearby on Lamar and got out and talked to him for a very long time. John and I did not get along for years. He wouldn't talk to me because I was at the Observer. Then he wouldn't talk to me because I was at the Morning News. But John and I bonded over the uh, the Knights of Pythias Temple uh, over here on uh, on Elm Street which is now becoming part of the epic development. Um, I've written many stories about its preservation and its need to be preserved. It was designed by Booker T. Washington's son-in-law. And it's a building that was near and dear to John's heart. John read the pieces I wrote for The Observer, and John had me on his show on KNON to talk about them. You know, it's interesting. I think John has disappeared from view in a way that's incredibly surprising at this point. When we talk about the vacuum of leadership in the city, John could have stepped in and filled it in a very important and real way, and he has not done that. Um, any not, idea why? No, I don't. It's not enough to be a contrarian. It's not enough to be a thorn in Clay Jenkins' side. Um, the fact is, John could have and should have stepped up to address the very real and horrible ways in which uh, COVID-19 is imp- impacting many of his residents uh, who does, who, whose lives have been turned upside down by this, uh, whether it's economy or whether it's health. Uh, and, and, and these are long-standing issues. I think John had a lot of great intentions once upon a time. John's also probably skated um, a federal conviction or two. So he's a complicated guy, Mike. A complicated guy. <laughs> what do you think about him? And yet a guy who knows how to party. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say about you. Mike Reiner's a complicated guy, but he knows how to party. That's right. That is what they say about me. All right, man. I cannot thank you enough. Well, I, I'm, 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 I'm honored. I'm thrilled. I'm delighted. One day we'll do another one of these if you want, and we'll talk about local music. Because, you know, I did this once uh, when you filled in. Uh, I think you filled in for David, or we did a, yes. an after, a post-intentional right. round. Yes, we did. Uh, where we just talked about music. And the fact is, uh, you and I have many questions. I have many questions for you to this day about your young musical career. And uh, one day I would love to be able to conversate about that. Well, we can do that anytime you want. I'm just going to call you and we're going to do it. You're welcome on this space anytime. Thanks to everybody for listening. I really appreciate you being with us through this maiden voyage, no matter when you might do it. This is, and I can't stress this enough. I'm Mike Rhino. Appreciate you, man. Mm-hmm.